Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. Kleptocracy is a huge problem in every country of Central Asia. The presidents, their families, and close associates all seem to be living very well, while large segments of the population are at best just making ends meet. Family members in particular, and often family members by marriage, usually own the most lucrative domestic businesses and have substantial assets outside their countries. And none of this is a secret to the people of Central Asia and the international community. The vast wealth of relatives of the Central Asian presidents has been receiving some attention in international media, and a handful of countries in Europe are starting to enact countermeasures. However, the notoriety has done little to curb their kleptocratic practices in Central Asia. Are sanctions a way of reigning in these excesses? To discuss all this, I am joined by LDR Arikbaev, Senior Investigative Reporter and Coordinator for Central Asia at the Organized Crime and, and Corruption Reporting Project, OCCRP. LDR is also a former editor-in-chief at the independent Kyrgyz news outlet Klop. Tom Main, a research fellow at Oxford University, currently working on a project entitled Providing the Evidence and Analysis for a UK Counter-Kleptocracy Strategy. Tom is also the director at, at the NGO Freedom for Eurasia. And Tom worked for many years at anti-corruption NGO Global Witness. Laila Saitbak is the chairman of the NGO Freedom for Eurasia and a member of the working group advocating for a global every woman treaty to end all forms of violence against women and girls. Thank you all for being on the program. And as I mentioned before, in the first half of the program, I would like to sit stage and talk about kleptocracy in each of the five Central Asian countries, if possible. LDR, it's your first time on the podcast. So I was hoping you could start us out by describing some of the kleptocracies in some of the Central Asian countries. Thank you, Bruce, for inviting me. It's honor for me to be on the podcast. So I mainly focus on several countries in Central Asia at OCRP, uh, to be exact, it's Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and in some parts it's also Tajikistan. So uh, I could speak about these uh, three countries. And I can start actually with Kyrgyzstan because I am initially from there. Right now what we can see that there is a huge consolidation of power in hands of the current president and his friend, like uh, Sadir Japarov and Kamchibektashev, respectively. And they came to power like three years ago after uprising in October 2020. And right now we can see that there are at least like some signs of corrupt activities in their circles. Uh, because we recently had an investigation on circles of, of Sabir Jafarov and his son. We can see that they cooperating with this secret tycoon, uh, Habibullah Pikadir, who enabled corruption in the country and who, uh, was involved into a money laundering scheme and who uh, built his huge fortune with the help of corrupt officials, to be exact, with the help of the former deputy head of Kyrgyz customs, Rambek Matlimov. And now we can see that current uh, authorities cooperating with this tycoon, this, this, this Abdikadir, even though one of the key messages of Japarov when he came to power, it was to, to put Matraimov in the prison, uh, but we could see that it 
didn't happen unfortunately uh, he was only you know he was fined for some like small amount of money and he also compensated damage to the budget whatever it meant he gave out like around 24 million millions of dollars but now again we can see that Jafarov's circles they are cooperating with this Abdikadir uh, who built his fortune again with with the help of Matrim. And we also could see a uh, deterioration of freedoms in the country that almost any critic who is not satisfied with Jafarov and Tashiv, these critics are now, you know, some of them, they're facing like criminal charges and some of the journalists, my friends, they are prosecuted for investigating for investigating corrupt activities of Tashrif and Jabarov in the country. And we can see that some like news media they are blocked and like club it was blocked and now people at club they prosecuted and the whole organization is now could be you know liquidated due to some made up reasons, you know. And you know, one of the most kind of, kind of like famous investigative teams in the country, led by Bolot Timirov, they are also facing troubles uh, with authorities. Uh, Bolot himself, uh, he was deported due to his journalistic work, and it's not, you know, uh, it shows that uh, the current authorities they are trying kind of like to protect themselves. And they kind of trying to silence like anyone uh, who who is, shows their illicit or illegal like actions, and it's kind of like mm-hmm. a common thing among you know our Central Asian like countries uh, because uh, in other in Tajikistan you couldn't do that in Uzbekistan you couldn't do that, especially during the of times you. Uh, you couldn't criticize the government, and uh, now it's Mirziyev. You, we, we could also see that you. There's small like, like it's situation is better like with Mirziyev a little bit, uh, but you still can criticize president. Before we before we go over to Uzbekistan, I want to let just let give Lila a chance to talk about Kyrgyzstan real quick, and I'll come back to you in a second. We'll talk about Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, okay? Um, Lila, what about kleptocracy in Kyrgyzstan, which is developing, right? You know, we've seen it before in, in pre- under previous leaders in Kyrgyzstan, but it seems to be reshaping. Yeah, it seems that um, the uh, Sadr Chaparov and Gonchivir uh, Tashriv are consolidating their power and also taking control of the major um, enterprises that produce, you know, any sort of profit. Most of their actions seem to be aimed at taking control of the uh, sources of wealth. And um, they also have been arresting the the businessmen in the country and confiscating their property and um, uh, arresting their uh, bank accounts, taking over their businesses. And that really resembles the times when we had Bakiev in power because um, that's what his um, family was doing as well. His family and the entourage 
uh, have been uh, consolidating these, um, you know, economic sort of powers around themselves as well. So that seems to be quite similar. Also, the the killings that have been happening and the arrests, mass arrests, basically, they are very similar to how it has happened in uh, during the Bakiev rule. But I think this time is actually even more severe, I would say. There we go. Uh, thank you. Okay. Um, you know, and I did want to mention and try to get in all the countries, at least a little bit of stuff, uh, information on all of them. LDR, um, can you tell us a little about, about what's happening in Uzbekistan? Now, now we, we've heard the name Gulnara Karimova. Of course, that's been out there for years and years. But President Mirziyoyev's two sons-in-law uh, seem to be doing quite well. And there, there, there are rumors going around that they're also acquiring many of the businesses in Uzbekistan. Have you heard this? Yeah. Actually, we were investigating Mirziyo family like for quite a bit uh, after he came to power. And again, we looked at our favorite businessman, again, Dekadir, and we found out that after the revolution of 2020 in Kyrgyzstan, he moved uh, his business to Uzbekistan and we saw him cooperating with the family. And we also did a huge investigation into his assets in Uzbekistan, and we showed how he was cooperating with uh, with uh, Mirziyev's family. And what we saw that Abdekadir took over uh, the control of Abu Sahi uh, market. You know, this is one of the biggest in the region. And but he was and he is yes uh, sharing like proceeds from this market uh, with uh, son-in-law, Umarov, and that the bazaar is now under, kind of, you know, like, under his protection. I mean, like, under Umarov's protection. This is what we found out during our, like, investigation. And it's not only that, uh, we also saw that, that this uh, links to the to the Mirziyev family. It helped Abdekadir to to build a huge network of customs terminals. Uh, basically, now we can see that Abdekadir controls export and import flows to the country, and uh, we also could see that he is cooperating with subsidiary company of uh, Russian railways and the Uzbek government to build import-export railway routes from Uzbekistan to Russia. And, of course, we assume that the, the Mirziyev family, they benefit from all this, all this, you know, deals. In general, we could see that it's, I could say that it's kind of trend in the region because Mirziyev family set, set it that they are publicly like announcing that they're trying to attract like different investors to the country, but in reality we could see that those investors they are not only some you know like big well-known companies, but it also sometimes people uh, who who made fortune in the region and they did it in some illicit way and they hid this fortune abroad like in the west and now they're coming back as a legitimate business businessman uh, ready to invest into the country 
And this is the case with um, Uzbekistan. And we can also see that now it's a case in Kyrgyzstan because Japarov is also trying to kind of like, you know, mimic his Uzbek colleague. Mm-hmm. Okay. Lana, uh, you know, I, I know that you're, you're from Kyrgyzstan, but what can you tell us about Kazakhstan? Let's talk a little bit about Kazakhstan for a second. Any comments about Kazakhstan? And then I'll, I'll let you answer that also, LDR. But Lila, can we start with you? Yeah, um, well, Kazakhstan is uh, the, probably the, 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 the biggest cryptocurrency in Central Asia, uh, in my opinion, because um, uh, the Nazarbayev's elites uh, had a long time to, uh, to grow their wealth uh, using their closeness to Nazarbayev and his family. And obviously, not only did they make themselves rich, they also made uh, Nazarbayev and his family rich. And many of these oligarchs actually um, are very well known in uh, on the international arena, and um, they now do business not only in Central Asia. They do business in in Europe. They do business in Africa. They are seen in Latin America. They own uh, companies and assets in UK and the United States. I want to mention um, one specific company uh, that is called ENRC. It's uh, Eurasian Natural Resources Corporation. It's a, a very well-known company. The the oligarchs that own this company are uh, Central Asian. And um, the way they have played a big role in Africa, for example, in bribing the officials in Africa which essentially led to a bloody tragedy in, uh, for example, in, uh, in DRC. And um, they are also connected with um, another very well-known individual. His name is Dan Gertler, and he's sanctioned by the United States, um, but they continued uh, doing business with them. And um, the, these people were investigated by the UK law enforcement, but the kleptocrats are learning now how to stand against, how to fight against, you know, any sort of investigations against them. And they are so successful at quashing the, the investigations uh, against them um, by law enforcement. They are silencing the civil society. They're going after the journalists. And what's also interesting, and the, this, this is exactly the company and the oligarchs that went after Tom, Tom Burgess after he uh, wrote his, uh, published his wonderful book called Cryptopia. So it's, it's interesting to see how these kleptocrats have basically destroyed the civil society and free speech in our countries to the point where we can't really work inside the country right now. It's too dangerous. And they are now going after the, Western journalists, and they're going after the civil society in the West, and they are attacking uh, Western democratic public institutions. So their legal tactics against uh, the serious fraud office in the UK, and, uh, you know, a, a very wide range of people who had anything to do with the investigation was so aggressive that um, the 10-year investigation basically led nowhere, and uh, the serious fraud office dropped the charges. I mean, of course, they were not. They were never officially uh, charged with corruption. But um, this example shows of how strong these kleptocrats are becoming. That you know, there will be a time when uh, law enforcement in the West won't even be able to investigate them any anymore. 
um, they will probably, um, they, they will be easily controlling public institutions. They will be very successful at silencing the civil society and journalists. So this is, this is quite, uh, this is quite disturbing. And Kazakhstan doesn't seem to be on its way towards solving this cryptocurrency issue. I really don't know the, the, the solution to that, to be honest. But any talks about return of the stolen assets really haven't really had any um, substantial uh, development. They, there haven't been any investigations into Nazarbayev family's wealth. Um, there were some investigations into some family members, but they seem to be more, you know, kind of politically motivated rather than actually going after, you know, their assets and getting them returned. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to say. No, 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 thank you. Thank you. Uh, it was good to know about this company dealing with the DRC, too. Um, LDR, we'll get back to you in a little bit about Kazakhstan, but I also want to talk, you know, real quickly, because we're, we're coming up to the halfway point, um, you know, a little bit about Turkmenistan and Tajikistan, because Turkmenistan and Tajikistan could legit, their governments could legitimately be called family businesses at this point, right? Um, but, but LDR, so if you could, you know, say, what, say something about Kazakhstan, but also give us an idea generally of the situation in Turkmenistan and Tajikistan. Uh, I completely agree Kazakhstan with Leila, but I also like to add that I I just like like to mention the story that, that we did about the uh, Nazarbayev assets, and I mean Nazarbayev himself, uh, because it before that it, uh, it never been re- revealed that Nazarbayev himself had something. But we last year we found out that he was controlling a huge empire of assets, like worth almost eight billion dollars, and he did it through a network of foundations uh, established in Kazakhstan. And through that network, he controlled, for, for example, a British company uh, that. Uh, in its order, uh, controlled uh, a lot of businesses inside inside Kazakhstan, like banking, like online marketplaces, mo- mobile operators, like uh, companies in logistics, shopping centers, like different financial services. And it should be also investigated how all this fortune was made and how did happen to be controlled by Nazarbayev himself. So this is what I'd like to add about Kazakhstan. Uh, oh, and we're joined by uh, Tom Main. Uh, you know, Tom, what, uh, what, what can you tell me about the kleptocracy in Turkmenistan? The problem with Turkmenistan, there's several. One, we don't quite have as much information. Obviously, we, you know, there is some information about assets held out outside the country, but it, it is very small compared to Kazakhstan, for example, where we have... You know, we could you could write a whole book on on on, on Kazakhstan and assets held outside. Um, yep, Turkmenistan is is run like a uh, a family business, um, so there would be a possibility of perhaps sanctioning some of the of the the the, the, the family members, the the the, the nephews uh, of uh, Bidim Khumedov uh, Senior. One difficult aspect with Turkmenistan, as concerns sanctions, is that. It's very hard to know who to sanction. We usually, well, we know that heads of state aren't sanctioned, so that rules out Bidimikmedov Junior and 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 Senior. In terms of 
government officials who have power, there really isn't anybody who outside of the president and the presidential family has power. Perhaps Rashid Miryedov, but as the foreign minister, he isn't really responsible for human rights abuses and isn't known to be to hold copious amounts of, 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 of money outside of, of the country. If you sanction a, uh, you know, a police, uh, a police chief, they're just really going to be uh, disappeared quite, quite quickly. So the problem with sanctions is barring one or two family members, who actually are you going to, to sanction in Turkmenistan? A reminder that we're talking about kleptocracy in Central Asia and also about the possible methods of, of combating kleptocracy in Central Asia. And my guests are LDR Arikvayev, Senior Investigative Reporter and Coordinator for Central Asia at the Organized Crime and, Corrup- and Corruption Reporting Project, OCCRP. LDR is also a former editor-in-chief at the independent Kyrgyz news outlet Cloak. Tom Main, a research fellow at Oxford University, currently working on a project entitled Providing the Evidence and Analysis for a UK Counter-Kleptocracy Strategy. Tom is also the director at, at the NGO Freedom for Eurasia. And Tom worked for many years at an anti-corruption NGO Global Witness. Laila Saifak is the chairman of the NGO Freedom for Eurasia and a member of the working group advocating for a global every woman treaty to end all forms of violence against women and girls. Okay, let's, we've talked, we've, We've described what the situation is in Central Asia. Let's see if we can come up with some remedies for this, some possible remedies for this. You know, people have suggested that, that sanctions could work. LDR, you were just starting to talk about uh, this unexplained wealth. Can you can you continue with that? Yes. There are different mechanisms how we, um, how we could uh, track uh, and see illicit um, activities and uh, one of them is uh, suspicious activity reports uh, which are filed uh, by banks uh, to uh, US Treasury but we also could see that these suspicious activity reports sales they they don't always work um, because either uh, U.S. Treasury is understaffed, and they don't have like a lot of people to investigate these transactions. Or sometimes they, they, for example, they ask uh, local like banking institutions, like financial institutions in uh, inside our countries, uh, like inside uh, Kyrgyzstan or Uzbekistan. And they ask them if local banks could provide, confirm uh, the legality of the transaction. And uh, local banks, they tend to say that that those transactions, that all these millions flowing outside of their countries, they're legit. But uh, in reality, they, they are not because we... Uh, we we saw that this uh, this example of Erkensay uh, Mighty Erkensay Mighty he was a money launderer uh, who who confessed about his money lo- uh, money laundering career and uh, he was laundering money outside of uh, Kyrgyzstan for quite a bit and 
uh, Western banks, they filed, like, uh, correspondent banks, they filed suspicious activity reports about his transactions. But when they asked local banks uh, if those transactions are legit, local banks, they kind of told correspondent banks that they are okay. But this is not how it should work. Okay, thank you. We're talking about possible remedies for uh, kleptocracy and, and, uh, you know, are sanctions possible? How do you you combat this problem, both at home, domestically and internationally? I mean, sanctions is a good good start, um, but they are only a a temporary solution. And we can get on to why they're temporary in a a minute. But uh, I think what's been disappointing from a a UK point of view is that we're not even using sanctions. So, you know, we have 200 people slain last year in, in the violence in, in, in Kazakhstan and, and, and not a single person has been sanctioned for, uh, for that. Now we understand that, um, you know, heads of state aren't sanctioned, but, but surely there is a, uh, you know, a police chief or, or, or somebody involved that we could find to, to sanction for that very serious human rights abuse. Uh, and aside from that, obviously, we've got we've got uh, corruption sanctions. We've got Global Magnitsky and the uh, Global Anti-Corruption Sanctions in the UK, um, and they're not being used uh, either uh, out of from from Central Asia only. Uh, Matraimov and Gulnara Krimova, of course, have been sanctioned under Global Magnitsky, and nobody in the in the in the UK. There just doesn't seem to be uh, an appetite for sanctions to be uh, used, presumably because. Kazakhstan, we have uh, extractive deals, and they're a partner uh, company, uh, country. But sanctions are supposed to be used uh, on uh, uh, our allies to try and direct them to the correct path to to uh, prevent people who have profited from uh, proceeds of corruption from enjoying those proceeds, but also showing uh, those countries in question that, that is not acceptable and that they should move away from that 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 kleptocratic uh, uh, path. Okay, thank you, Lila. What can uh, individual governments do? What can the international community do to, to try to curb these these practices of the Central Asian leadership and their families to bring wealth outside of the country or to amass it inside the country? So, the, of course, these uh, sanctions regimes are tools that uh, we really need uh, to, to to be used by the, the democratic states to curb the corruption. Um, the problem is, as Tom has mentioned, um, the, the Western democracies really are hesitant at using these uh, sanctions regimes against Central Asian states, um, probably because, um, because yes, because of the, the various uh, deals and agreements and um, because they are allies and because there is probably, you know, um, you know, a concerns that maybe it would worsen uh, the relationships with these countries. The problem is, though, um, the, these cryptocracies, when they develop and they become bigger and they become wealthier, they use Western uh, systems to store their wealth. And when they bring those, um, uh, the, when they they bring their money here and they buy properties and they start, you know, um, using their money on silencing, as I have mentioned, on silencing the journalists and civil society already in the in the West and attacking the public institutions, the law enforcement, disabling the, these uh, government agencies, uh, basically making them unable to investigate further any corrupt deals that they have been doing. And because their deals are 
you know, now going beyond Central Asia. They're working everywhere. Um, they're working in, in, in all of the parts of the world. So it's, um, it's, it's, you know, the cryptocracy and corruption obviously is a threat and it has no, uh, geographical, it's not a geographical phenomenon. It, it, it doesn't really end at the border. It goes beyond borders. It, uh, damages democratic institutions. And it's, it's, it is a threat. And we have seen, um, the, the danger that a kleptocracy holds for the free world. We saw that from the Russia example, uh, with, with their aggression, uh, against Ukraine. And that was actually the, the moment where the world has started seeing kleptocracy for what it is. It is a source of security, uh, threat to not only, you know, a region, but also globally. So the question is, and we also saw how the West has reacted, you know, in, in a very concerted manner against Kremlin, against the Kremlin oligarchs, against the officials in Russia. So we know that it's possible when there is a will. It's not clear right now what is needed for the world to start acting in concert against Central Asian kleptocrats, because we do have a problem right now of sanctions evasion, for example, that has been reported for the past several months. Um, numerous reports about how Central Asia is being used to evade sanctions and um, how it's a huge black hole where all kinds of prohibited goods are going in and end up in Russia. They have been issuing falsified customs documents, you know, that would show a destination somewhere in Central Asia, but in reality, the goods would end up in Russia. It's not only that they are unable to control it, they are also unwilling to control it because this is how they function. These states cannot function otherwise. They function through corruption. They function for corruption. And, you know, it's it actually influences a wide range of things. And we see that uh, from, for example, from our uh, human rights background, we uh, investigate the cases of um, human rights violations. And what we see uh, in our work is that always the the violations, any sort of violation um, of human rights and um, international norms and abuse, they they are always connected to some some form of corruption. And just to jump in, uh, Bruce, uh, excuse me, but I think just to reiterate what Leila has said, and uh, in addition to my previous answer, you know, if we, we take Kazakhstan, you know, Takayev himself has said there needs to be a repatriation of money uh, that has been taken out of Kazakhstan into Kazakhstan. And he didn't name names, but he was he was clearly, you know, indicating uh, members of the of the, of the former president's uh, family. So the UK and, and, and the US can actually help Takayev in this process. Now, I'm not a great fan of Takayev, and the system seems very similar to uh, uh, what it was under Nazarbayev, but at least you could uh, show some kind of support to what we take at face value as a as a uh, you know an honest aim uh, is to repatriate funds back to Kazakhstan that has uh, have been taken out, uh, and you can start to do that by sanctioning in individuals. And we know we have countless investigations into Kazakh assets held in the UK, uh, and it's quite frankly bizarre that the UK has has you know failed to 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 act uh, after uh, the events of two thousand and twenty two. In this regard, perhaps because of the disastrous, unexplained uh, wealth order 
that that was issued against Dalí Gnasibayeva that that failed. Perhaps the UK has said, well, you know, we don't want to waste uh, any more time and money on this. It's 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 too 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 complex. But uh, you would think that even with Takayev saying it, that that the uh, the UK would would be would be assisting in in some way. But uh, as far as we 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 know, they 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 are not because no sanctions have been issued. Okay, um, thank you. We're getting close to the end here, so I want to ask one question, and then I'll give everyone a chance to make some some final comments. But my question is: Okay, if it's so hard to go after, you know, members of the family of current presidents, you know, every all these countries have uh, people that are helping them out, enablers, whatever, that are foreigners, right? Actually, living in these these countries abroad. Uh, Lila, you'd made reference to, to this in Africa too. Why can't why can't uh, authorities go after those people? The, the you know the the people that are helping them to bring money out or acquire property outside the country. Uh, LDR, I'll start with you. We are talking enablers, right? Yeah, probably we should. I think in some sense we uh, could try to change a, a legislation a little bit in this sense in order like to prevent all this lo- lo- loyals uh, and uh, co- companies. Uh, to stop them from uh, helping like corrupt officials uh, to establish like sh- different like shell companies uh, and I think it's really like difficult to see how it's gonna work like uh, in in practice but actually wanted like to speak also about like other ways how like international community could like stop corrupt practices and one of the ways is to support local independent journalism and activists in the region because to impose sanctions there should be some basis for it and uh, yes international institutions are doing like investigations but it's us local journalists who knows the situation and who could tell the world about violations and corrupt practices of our local officials and leaders and uh, we also could also international financial institutions could introduce and enforce conditions to develop transparency in the country before lending money to our governments because because sometimes you can see like ridiculous situation when on one hand we could see like completely corrupt governments like in Tajikistan and in other hand we could see like international institutions like cooperating with them and giving them money and uh, there are also like reports of local journals that those money they're misused and they're mis- misspent. Okay, that's good. That's good. Tom, what do you think about that? Is, it, is that where one of the places they should crack down on these governments is, is when it comes time to talk about aid or investment or something that should be brought up? I think I'm going to take the question in a, in a, in a different direction. I think for me, there's, there's, there's two issues. The first is a question of legality. In order to crack down on, on the enablers, on the lawyers, solicitors, bank managers, you need to be able to, to show uh, you know, a predicate crime that the, the uh, enabler has uh, continued a money laundering scheme, uh, for example. But the issue with kleptocracies is because the people who are uh, laundering the money or, or, or siphoning the money are in charge, uh, they have kind of legitimized those financial flows. So in the time of, 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 of Kulibayev and Nuraliyev, 
they could point to a legitimate signed, sealed and delivered state contract or a loan from a bank with a, an official stamp on it, which said this is, you know, sanctioned by by the state. So it's very hard for the lawyer to say, well, why shouldn't I take this business? And of course, us as anti-corruption experts know that you shouldn't take the money because you're you're involved in in, in entrenching a, um, a a kleptocracy. But it, it, it is quite difficult to to tell a lawyer don't don't act to, for this person when uh, they have you know they can point to uh, you know a state a state contract which which legitimizes the the whole thing. And that is why the global community is trying to look at new bits of, uh, of legislation, such as the unexplained wealth order, uh, to try and get around this problem of, of, of dealing uh, with, with kleptocracies. But I think there's a long way to, uh, to, to um, uh, go on that. Secondly, is that when criminal activity is discovered, such as with Gulnada Karimova, often the enablers just fall by the wayside. And in the report that Freedom for Eurasia published, called uh, who enabled the Uzbek uh, princess about Gulnada's property empire, we did name five or six law firms, uh, real estate agents, accountants who were involved in, in Gulnara's business, unwittingly or, or, other not, or otherwise. The problem there we have is that the enablers just don't answer questions. So we wrote to them and they said that, you know, all all relevant legislation was followed. And of course, enshrined in the UK legislation is a kind of get out of jail free card. Uh, if you are in a uh, an industry that is regulated for money laundering, uh, such as real estate, accountancy, uh, and, and, and banking, and so on, if you file a, a suspicious activity report to the National Crime Agency, that absolves you of, of, of any legal risk when it comes to suspicions of, 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 of money laundering, you have done your, your duty. And there certainly is a problem with then the authorities not acting on the information. Um, so it becomes a question of, of, of enforcement rather than the laws. Yet we don't know in the case of Gulnada what was done and what wasn't done. Uh, the suspicious activity reports, were they filed? We simply don't know. And the enablers hide behind this uh, confidentiality, uh, which actually in this case doesn't apply because the serious fraud office has, has said that these were indeed criminal funds. So once uh, that has been established, the, the, the duty of confidentiality falls away. But these enablers do hide behind uh, that provision. And so we're, we're none the wiser as to what was done or what wasn't done and whether there would actually be a legal case uh, that could be taken up against the people who have helped Gulnara uh, launder money. Wow, thank you. Uh, okay, and I am sorry, but we're running short on time. So I'm going to actually call for everyone to make their last say their last statement, whatever they want to say about kleptocracy and sanctions uh, right now. And I'll start with you, Lila. Yes. Um, I also wanted to, uh, to mention what um, I think should uh, be done to be able to address the issue of Central Asian kleptocracy. What we have also seen in the past in our experience uh, working on these cases is that um, oftentimes um, these uh, agencies that try to investigate these cases, they lack funding and they lack people. Um, there was a situation, for example, when I think it was actually in Betty Gaz's case that um, the investigation was not able to establish the connection um, between a person uh, who held the assets and uh, Nasrabayeva. 
simply because there was nobody who could have Googled it in Cyril. Tom, am I right? Am I, am I, am I remembering this right? Yes. Um, and there was also, there were some other instances like this, you know, where very small things have played a really big role in, uh, in you know, in basically in, in the form of failed investigation. Um, and I'll, I'll give you another example. Uh, for example, this, uh, the, the trio of these oligarchs that I have mentioned earlier, they have spent a total of half a billion dollars on their aggressive litigation uh, tactics against the journalists, against the civil society, against the uh, the serious fraud office and the employees of the serious fraud office. Now, obviously, and that was uh, in a span of, let me see, 2014 through 2020, they spent half a billion. And in just one year, in 2020-2021, they spent $86 million on this, on their litigation expenses. I, I mean, this is more than probably any law enforcement agency has across all kinds of different um, investigations. So often it becomes really difficult to, to investigate them. And the bigger and the stronger they become, they, the more difficult it's going to become for, the, um, for these institutions to try and take action against them. There aren't, though, I mean, it's not just the sanctions that need to be enforced. Um, there are, the, the, in Gulnara's case, for example, uh, the real change, the real difference was made when um, official investigations were launched. And we're still, I mean, it's, it's not a, a quick process. It's, um, it has taken, what, 10 years now, right? Um, and the, 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 uh, the proceedings are still ongoing. So, yeah, I think, I think it's very important to beef up the, these law enforcement agencies to provide more funding um, ensure they have more people and people that really know the subject also, because this is, again, as Tom has mentioned, you know, somebody who doesn't know Central Asia, I mean, just simply not understand when they're provided some sort of a statement from, from Kazakhstan or from, from Uzbekistan and to actually understand what that means. So that would be, yeah, my recommendation. Okay. Thank you. Uh, LDR, let's get to you. And if I could ask you to keep your comments kind of brief, because we're at the 50 minute mark here. Okay. I think. We shouldn't really trust our governments to investigate themselves, uh, but we should uh, support, again, independent local journalism and activists in the region because, again, to impose sanctions against certain people or to start uh, investigation uh, against uh, some official on international level, there should be some basis for it. So I think supporting local people, I think, would work uh, in this regard. Okay, and Tom, I guess the, you have the last word here for uh, comments, so please. Sure, so I think, I think you know, long-term kleptocracy, we need to be more clever about how we, we, we tackle it because of this issue of it being, it being state-sanctioned. But that is, that is quite far off. We're only, I think, beginning to, to, to get to grips with it, you know, with the Russian invasion, seeing the amount of damage that kleptocratic flows can, can cause. But first things first, we've got these great uh, uh, laws, we've got these great sanctions regimes set up specifically for the purpose of, of corruption, Global Magnitsky and the Global Anti-Corruption Sanctions Regime. Uh, why are we not using them? Why are we not using unexplained wealth orders? Uh, we were heard about 100 investigations ongoing when they were introduced in 2018. Now we're five years later 
And there have only been five uh, unexplained wealth order investigations, uh, one of which was a total disaster with the Dodigan Azabayeva one. Uh, so we, we, we spend all this time in the UK passing these laws, which are innovative, but we don't use them. Same could be said for the Bribery Act, which has been going 10, 11, 12 years now. Uh, we need to use the, te- the, the tools at our disposal uh, before creating uh, new ones, which we do need. But let's just first uh, for, first enforce what we have. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, so we've reached the end of the program. So thank you, Lila and LDR and Tom. And a big thanks, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjolies podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjolies podcast or the Central Asian Focus newsletter by visiting Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty's website at rfrl.org. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye.